Awesome. And good morning, everyone. For those who I haven't met, my name's Bryce. I'm part of the ministry team. It's such a privilege to be part of that team and to be um, preaching this morning, just as we uh, come around God's Word again. And we'll be concluding our series on 1 Peter today. We've been going through over the last few months. We started this series with this picture. Uh, And if you were here, you'll remember that this is a picture from a beach in Thailand as the uh, Boxing Day tsunami was bearing down on the coast. And uh, you can see the people there who had gone out into the shallows wondering at why the tide had gone out so far and now this wall of water was now uh, coming on them. And as we started looking at this series in 1 Peter, I reminded us that the world uh, is a bit like that. People going out in the shallows, uh, complacent and... um, not knowing that a tsunami is coming. And I was encouraging us as a church that we need to keep that in mind um, to remember the things that God tells us in his word and not to be out there joining in with the carelessness in the world, forgetting that there is a tsunami that's coming. So we talked about that. We talked about being foreigners in a foreign land, how we have a different king and a different kingdom now, different values that we operate by, as God's people. We have a new identity. We talked about that and how um, out of that new identity that we have, we live a holy life before God. And the idea of suffering for doing good, that idea kept coming up again and again over the, um, the, the last few weeks of this and being a witness for Jesus to the world. So as we conclude this series today, I'd like to tell you the story of Dirk Willems or Dirk Willems. Uh, Dirk lived in the mid-1500s in the town of Asperin in the Netherlands. It was a time back then in the mid-1500s in the Netherlands when people were being imprisoned and put to death for crimes such as being baptised as an adult or holding a church service in your home. These heinous crimes could get you a death sentence in those times. And Dirk Willems was one of those people who was captured and imprisoned. And Dirk loved life. He didn't particularly want to die. And so he managed, the crafty guy that he was, he managed to take the bedsheets and make this long rope, let himself down out of the window, out of the tower that he was imprisoned in, down and uh, he got down to the, the uh, castle moat, which was frozen and was able to make his escape. Unfortunately, a guard spotted him escaping and chased after Dirk. And as he ran, he came to a lake and the frost had covered it with a thin layer of ice. Now, being imprisoned, he had uh, lost a lot of weight and so he risked a dash across the ice and it kind of cracked and creaked under his feet, but he made it to the other side. And just as he made it to the other side, he heard someone crying out behind him. One of his pursuers had gone onto the ice after him, but it went through and had gone down into the water, the icy water, and was drowning. The person couldn't pull himself up and out because all the ice was breaking around them and was dying there. And he had a split-second decision to make about this. What should he do? Here's a wooden graving that was done uh, centuries and centuries ago, uh, which is depicting this scene. Instead of making his escape, he turned around and came back and rescued the pursuer from out of the freezing water and got him out of the ice and saved his life. Um, The guard would have let Dirk escape, but the commanding officer was standing on the bank 
and commanded him that he recapture Dirk again, and he was brought back to prison. And so he was condemned to death for the crimes of being rebaptized as an adult and allowing church services to be conducted in his home, and he was put to death on May the 16th, 1569. I wonder if your response at hearing that story is the same as mine when I first read that, when I was in Bible college. Why would someone stop and go back and rescue the person that was pursuing them in that way? I mean, he had escaped, he was on his way, and he could easily have rationalised, thought it to himself, well, God has blessed me by allowing my pursuer to go down through the ice so I could make a clean getaway. Could have thought about it like that. He could have reasoned it away and say, well, I never told him to follow me. It's his problem, you know. And maybe he's getting what he deserves, you know, drowning like that. But what does he do? He has compassion for this person. He turns around, goes back, helps him up out of the water, and then he's recaptured and he's put to death for it. It raises so many questions. It's so unfair. It's so unjust. He'd done nothing wrong. Here's the front cover of a book by Ray Comfort that came out just a couple of years ago. It's entitled, God Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life. Uh, The subtext is the myth of the modern message, and there's an image there of Stephen being stoned to death, uh, as we read about in Acts chapter 8. Maybe um, a bit of a slightly sarcastic look at that idea of uh, how so many people think that uh, the Christian life is about God having a wonderful plan for your life. And you might be sitting here thinking, you know, as we've been going through this series on suffering for doing good, Dirk Willem's been put to death literally only did good, and yet he, was, he suffered for that. And you might be sitting here thinking, I never signed up for this. When I became a Christian, I was told that God has a wonderful plan for my life, you know, a plan uh, for good and not for evil, not for harm, but for blessing. Um, I don't know if I'm ready for this. I imagine that most of us would like to live our lives in some kind of undisturbed tranquility if we had the choice. And the account of Dirk Willem's life and death probably is not something that anyone in this room would aspire to, I imagine, or want for their life. But through his selfless act of saving his pursuer and then getting recaptured again, he has been an inspiration to literally hundreds of millions of people over the centuries that have heard about his life since then, uh, people who are followers of Jesus. And he's been um, you know, uh, known about from tens of millions more, other people who don't know Jesus as their Lord and are just kind of bewildered by why would he uh, do such a thing, um, completely baffled by what he did. Dirk Willem's life was an embodiment of the love of Christ in action. Now, as we've been going through 1 Peter, this main theme has been suffering for doing good, and the goal behind this, the reason why we've gone through this series, is to prepare you and I, the church, for the uncertain days that are ahead of us. As we see the tide turn against the church, what kind of people should we be? What kind of values should we consider most important for the way that we live our life? We really need to have a mindset which is informed by God's word first, not to allow our mindset to be conformed to the world standards. Now today we'll finish chapter 5, we'll finish the letter, and what we are going to look at today is this, is to understand really 
where the opposition to us is coming from. So if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to open to 1 Peter 5, uh, and we'll uh, start reading together from verse 8. And so firstly, what we see here is our true enemy. And so 1 Peter 5, reading from verse 8, says this. It says, Peter says to us, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And so this is the true source of the opposition that we face as followers of Jesus. It's not people, and it's not even governments and their legislation which might try and target Christians. Um, There is a real supernatural spirit known as the devil or Satan. Uh, His name was Lucifer. Lucifer means shining one. It's a good name. Uh, He was once an angelic being like an archangel like Gabriel or Michael. And if you read in the book of Isaiah chapter 14, it talks about how Lucifer tried to overthrow God in heaven. He believed that he should have the worship uh, and adoration of the angel. So he um, tried to overthrow God's reign and receive the praise and worship, but he was defeated and cast out of heaven. And he must be a very persuasive and cunning being indeed, because a third of the angels, we read, uh, accompanied him and were also cast out of heaven. Can you imagine angels which could see the face of God and yet somehow through um, Satan's, Lucifer's persuasion that they believed that God was the wrong one who needed to be opposed? And so these are fallen angels, or we call them demons. And so his name is no longer Shining One. Uh, He's referred to as Satan or the devil. Both these names mean adversary or accuser or slanderer even. Now, Satan was permitted to enter the Garden of Eden uh, to tempt Eve and Adam to eat that forbidden fruit. You read about that in Genesis, and they did eat the fruit. And since then, everything in our world has been thrown off. It's been fractured. Um, And death entered the world from that point. And at that point, we read about it in Genesis chapter 3. We're only three chapters into the story of our world. Uh, God declared this promise to Satan. He said to him, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So what God's saying is that one day a deliverer is going to come. And this deliverer was going to uh, defeat him one day. And so throughout history, what we have seen is the devil, the, the enemy of God's people, trying to wipe out that line through which this deliverer might come. It's actually a really interesting study to go through the Bible and, and even just through history itself to see how the enemy has tried to wipe out the people of, of Israel, the Jews, from the world, so that that line would be uh, destroyed. I don't have time to go into that, but it's a really interesting study to look at that, to see how he's tried to wipe out that line of the deliverer's birth or the Messiah's birth. It seems he came close numerous times, but always failed. And so in the fullness of time, Jesus of Nazareth was born in accordance with all the prophecies which were made about him. And through his death on the cross, Satan... Um, thought he had triumphed, 
but he was defeated. Uh, as that, pro- that, of- that prophecy said from God, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And, you know, you can get bitten on the heel by a snake, you still die. Jesus died on the cross, but look who's in charge here. He might have been bitten on the heel, but in that moment, uh, he was the one who crushed the serpent's head under his foot, meaning that he defeated Satan. That the kingdom of God is now alive and active and growing in the world through the church. Now, most people in the world, including some Christians, it seems, don't view the things this way. They kind of view their lives as being unaffected by the spiritual world around them, this great battle that every single person on this planet is born into. They just forget about that. But if we uh, think that way, we're certainly mistaken. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you have been given a task to do, and that is to pursue the advancement of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom on the earth and to work towards the defeat of the enemy and his kingdom in this world. And so in 1 Peter, we read before there, it says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Devour is a very graphic word here. It basically means to to chew someone up in one bite, to swallow them down in one gulp, uh, to destroy the victim in one go. And so our enemy is always looking for ways to get at God's people and destroy our lives. Not necessarily to kill you. What he wants to, because that, that question is no longer in doubt. We've crossed over from death to life. Eternal life has started in our lives now. And so we are under God's uh, protection and his, his rule. What he wants to do is to ruin your testimony. He wants to destroy your witness because as our watching world looks at us, they make an assessment of, of God and his kingdom where they should follow him through your and my lives. That influences them uh, in their assessment of God. So he wants to destroy our witness. What could that look like in practical terms? Well, in the Old Testament book of Second Samuel, we read about King David and how he stayed at home when the kings would normally go to war after the winter, during the springtime. They would go out and um, that was the, the time known as for wartime. And we read that David stayed home and it seems that he was being complacent. It seems that he uh, had had plenty of downtime during the winter months. He could have got rest during that time. But now it's the springtime and he's still back at the palace. And he was shirking his responsibilities as the king of Israel. He was meant to be with the men out on the battlefield, but he stayed home relaxing. And what King David didn't realise is that being back at the palace, he was very much more in greater danger there than he ever was out on the battlefield. When he was fighting the, the battles of Israel, he always had victories. But we read that it was late afternoon, he got up from his bed because he'd been napping during the day, and he walked around the palace rooftop and he saw a woman from there that he wanted. And because of what happened next with Bathsheba, who was the wife of one of his good friends, he took her as his own. He didn't realise it at the time, but it was the worst defeat of his life. And the consequences of that defeat were felt for generations to come. It was all downhill from there, for his family and for the nation of Israel. That was the 
The day before that happened was the high water mark for the nation of Israel, and it just went down from there ever since. And if you and I are careless, we can fall into one of the traps of the devil as well, which will ruin our testimony, our witness in the world, our witness of our life for Jesus. And so Peter tells us how to avoid that from happening. In 1 Peter, he says, be self-controlled and alert. Be alert of sober mind, another place puts it. Like a soldier standing watch over a city, always staying alert and listening and watching to see if there's any attacks from the enemy coming. We are always to be on the alert, to avoid like a spiritual drowsiness which can come upon us. Now, when Peter wrote those words, I wonder if he was thinking back to something that happened in his own life many years before. Um, I'm thinking of what happened on the night when Jesus was arrested. It seems that so many times when we're going through 1 Peter, I wonder if his mind was harking back to different things that we read about in the Gospels. And on that night when Jesus was arrested, when they were at the Last Supper, Jesus told Peter, he said to him, the devil has specifically asked me that he might sift you like wheat. The devil wants to test you, Peter, to see if your faith is genuine or not. Wow, what a thing to say to somebody. And Peter's like, no worry, no need to worry about me, Jesus. I've got this, you know. Um, I, I am willing to follow you anywhere. Um, even if everyone else deserts you, even if all these other disciples desert you, I never will. You know, he had such a, a great sense of confidence. And Jesus says, oh, really, Peter? Well, I happen to know something that you don't, and that is before the rooster crows, so within the next 12 hours or so, you're going to deny three times that you even know me. Peter's like, well, I don't know where you're getting your information, Jesus, but uh, you know, I'm, really, I'm ready to go to death for you right now. And um, he was so confident. So off they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. We read about this in Mark 14. Jesus instructs his disciples, he says, watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. He's trying to warn his disciples. He's trying to say, the devil's around. You need to be alert. Watch and pray. You need to be self-controlled and alert. Because Peter wasn't alert. He had this spiritual drowsiness going on. And before too long, he's fallen asleep. He wasn't there for Jesus. At that one time, he just needed his closest followers to be with him, praying with him. And he wakes up, he tries to take the life of one of the, the guards which have come to arrest Jesus. Jesus wasn't too happy about that. Um, and then shortly after that, he denied Jesus three times that he even knew him. And God says to you and I today through 1 Peter, he says, be self-controlled, be alert. Satan is defeated, yes, the outcome of the battle is decided, but there are still things that are battles that we will need to fight in our life. We had the state of origin a few months ago. Um, and uh, even though it was the first two games went to the Maroons, they still played the third, didn't they? Because there's, there's, there's things to play for still. And so they went to the third game. The series was won, it was decided. But they still played the third. Um, and if you played in that third game, you could still get injured. And you certainly didn't want to be that guy to fumble the ball on your own try line and gifted try to the other team, did you? There was things to play for in that game, even though uh, the outcome was decided over the series. That's kind of like what we have going on today. 
the battle's won, but Satan's still very active in the world. And he never knows where the danger is going to come from. He never knows if there's going to be another Elijah or a Daniel or an Apostle Peter or a Martin Luther or a Billy Graham, which is going to, to come and to threaten his kingdom. And so he's always on the lookout, um, trying to get at people, maybe new converts, before they get a chance to grow in their faith and become a greater foe to his kingdom. He's always active. We read back in um, 1 Peter chapter 4, we read these words. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. The idea is that as Christians, we can become bewildered. Why is this happening to me? This opposition, this spiritual warfare, why is it happening to me? I'm a child of the king. So why is it happening? Well, it happens because you are a child of the king. Like the story I told a little while ago about Dirk Willems, these things happen in our life and we can still do everything right and still be persecuted just because of the light that is in you and me. Actually, the persecution comes because we have the light of Christ shining through us to the world. So what should we do? Well, 1 Peter 5 verse 9, it goes on to tell us what we should do, and this is the main point of application for this message today. 1 Peter 5 verse 9 says, Resist him, standing firm in the faith. James uh, 4 uh, verse 7, it uses almost identical language. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we must always remember that ultimately it's spiritual powers which are at work in the world that we are up against. It's not the people through whom they work. Dirk Willems and all the opposition he had through people, it wasn't that government which had those crazy policies which would put people to death just for being baptised or having a church service in their home. Behind that there was the influence of the evil one influencing that government to do that. And so we resist by standing firm in the faith, as it says. So that, says that means to remain firm in our trust in God, to remain firm in our belief that God has the power to overcome the enemy, to remain firm in our belief in his goodness, that God hasn't forsaken us, to remain firm in the trust that God is still on the throne and he is still working through it all. We don't ignore the devil's existence, but we don't cower before him either. We resist him. And so it means that we have confidence that God will intervene in our situation and give us victory and not defeat. There is another metaphor the Bible uses for resisting as well. We find that in Ephesians 6. And uh, you might be familiar with that as it talks about the equipment that we use for spiritual warfare. I encourage you to read through that whole passage. Um, that's a really key one for us. And so to resist also means that we use all of these resources which are at our disposal um, for the Christian life. So prayer, the word of God, praise, uh, the help of other Christians, having an awareness of the righteousness of Christ which covers us, uh, of his salvation 
which uh, has caused us to cross over from death to life and having an assurance of that. Having the shield of faith uh, in God's goodness. I think that is a, such a key one for us all because when it comes to spiritual battles, I mean, how often do we allow fear and doubt to get at us? The shield of faith is there to, to block all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Those arrows can be fears and doubts that we have. Doubts and fears that God won't really provide for me. He won't really protect me. He won't um, help me in my time of need. And so we, we exercise the shield of faith by remembering all, of the, remembering all the promises that he has said in his word. That he will provide for me if I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33. That he will protect me. That he will help me in my time of need. This idea of God's goodness has been such a key series for us to go through this year, and we'll be picking it up after this series shortly in the coming weeks. It's so crucial that we have that a simple trust in God's goodness, that we, um, this is part of having the shield of faith. You could say that to put on all of the armour of God, it's really, in a sense, to put on Christ uh, in our life. He's the good shepherd. It's the good shepherd's job to protect the sheep, uh, to protect them from the enemy. It's not the sheep's good job. The sheep doesn't uh, have the job of having to uh, defeat the enemy. That's the shepherd's job. Uh, the enemy is much too strong for you and I anyway. We can't defeat him ourselves because um, it's all about the shepherd having to fight this battle for us. And the sheep's job is to remain close to the shepherd. That's our job. That's the kind of language of abiding, isn't it? We abide with Christ. We remain in him. We stay close to him. And in doing so, we resist the devil and we find that Christ fights our battles. We trust in the finished work of Christ. I love how Bruce reminded us this morning about how we are presented holy and blameless before God in Christ. There is a, a finished work that Jesus has achieved for us on the cross. Now, we don't know when the day of evil will come for you and I, but one thing is certain, and that is that we will face those days. And when we resist the devil, when we trust in God's strength, when we believe the promises that he has given us, one of those promises is that he will flee. Now, he doesn't flee from you and I because of our strength. He flees from us because of God and his, his mighty power. As I've said, if you're a Christian, your eternal destiny is secure. I mean, that particular question around that um, has been answered, and so you come under God's supernatural protection. And this lion, which prowls around seeking your destruction, it's a tethered lion. He can't get at you one millimetre beyond what God will permit in your life. 1 John 4 verse 4 says, The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. God watches over your life. And I'm sure that he intervenes in so many dozens of ways every day that we're not even aware of. So that's really the, um, the background behind where the uh, opposition comes from. Not from any person, not from the government, it's actually from our enemy. But in that battle that we fight. We see also God's grace in our suffering. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, it goes on to say this. And the God of all grace, who called you to his 
eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So yes, we do have a determined and a powerful enemy, but I really love uh, the way that Peter uh, encourages the church here to talk about the God of all grace. Just introducing that concept there um, straight after those other words about resisting, the God of all grace. We are only Christians because of God's grace and we trust in his ongoing grace in our life every day. We need his ongoing grace in our lives and that's what he gives. He supplies his grace freely to his children, you and me. Grace, grace that will be sufficient for anything that you and I will face in our lives. He goes on to say, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That there is um, there's meaning and there is purpose for the things that happen in our life, even the, the persecution we might experience. There's a promise in this that if we experience suffering for the gospel, that one day there will be victory and vindication. Maybe it'll be in this life, but certainly it will be in the next life, in eternity. Um, we read in Matthew, these are Jesus' words, in Matthew 5, verse 10, he says here, at the list of the end of those eight Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to say in verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5 as well, you can read this in your own time, talks about the judgment seat of Christ, where we must all appear uh, before Christ to receive rewards proportionate to what we've done in the body. And so on that day, being faithful, even under opposition and persecution, it matters on that day. It'll be greatly rewarded. It's not for nothing. We'll find that on that day, that it matters how we have lived out our faith, even in times of persecution, probably especially in times of persecution. In those verses there in 1 Peter 5, uh, Peter goes on to say that God will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. So there's things that God is wanting to do in your life through this opposition that we are going to face. So it talks about how he will restore us, and so that means to make someone completely adequate, sufficient, and fully qualified. It's something that he pro is promising that he's going to do in your life. And we will become strong, firm, and steadfast. So to cause someone to become more able, capable, stronger, less fearful, to cause someone to become firm and unchanging in attitude or belief, and to provide a firm basis for belief or practice to establish. These are things that God is wanting to work and will work in our lives as we come through opposition and difficulties. Now, um, the idea here is that Peter is kind of laying up a whole lot of synonyms, uh, similar kind of words all together. It's not really for us to try and tease out differences between these things because they're so similar to each other. We get this overall idea, though, that as we encounter suffering for Christ's sake, as he brings us through that in his time, these are the things he's wanting to achieve in your life and mine. That we become this kind of a person. And we see this playing out in Acts chapter 8. Um, I, talk, I mentioned before the martyrdom of Stephen. 
uh, as he was put to death. And it goes on to say this in Acts chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so we're trying to destroy the church through persecution. It's a bit like this. It's a bit like um, trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing on it. And those seeds just get scattered and then uh, it gets multiplied uh, even more as it, uh, the seeds scatter. And so those early Christians were so much more effective in scattering and advancing the kingdom through those times of persecution than they ever would have been if they stayed comfortable and secure in Jerusalem. Now God used that time of trouble to push them out to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And everywhere they went, they took the seeds of the gospel. They preached that message. There was this boldness now as they were sharing the faith through the persecution. They, they would have known people who were in prison or had lost their lives for their faith, but there they were now. They were being pushed out from Jerusalem, now sharing this message with greater boldness now because it solidified something in their heart. They've chosen a side that they are following Jesus and the message of the gospel. We've almost come to the end of uh, this letter, but I'd like to just read the last few verses as we uh, wind up. Reading from verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. He's saying this is what the Christian life really looks like. Something strange isn't happening to you with what you're experiencing. Stand fast. Don't give up. Persevere. You're on the right track. He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. So that's a reference to a Christian sister who's in Rome, they, they believe. That's what that's saying. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. I actually prefer J.B. Phillips' translation of that to say, um, uh, greet or welcome one another with a hearty handshake all round. <laughs> Let's go with that. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And with that, the letter is finished. We made it through 1 Peter. Now, here's some questions um, that you might want to take a photo of and just think about in your own time or talk with people after the service. I wonder for you, what's something that stood out to you from this series? What things has it stirred up for you, perhaps? What do you fear most about this idea of being persecuted for the sake of Christ? And I wonder what you've discovered as you have resisted the devil in your life because as we pro progress in the Christian faith, as we encounter times of opposition or spiritual warfare and we resist, then we go on to have testimonies of how God delivers us from those things and our faith continues to grow a little bit more and God uh, can entrust us with greater tasks because we are continuing to trust in him through these different times of opposition. Maybe take a photo of that and consider some of those things. And as always, we're always happy to receive emails from you guys if you have questions um, or there's things that you'd like to tell us about how God has come through for you in your own life. Why don't we just take a few moments? If God has spoken to you about anything today, I'd love for you just to have some time just to, to talk to God about that. We'll have some silent prayer and then I'll close our time with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we uh, know that there is an enemy that seeks our ruin. 
But Lord, thank you that you have overcome, Lord, that the outcome isn't in doubt and we have a glorious hope, wonderful future before us, Lord, and the confidence that that gives us to live each and every day under your kind uh, reign and rule over our life. Father, please help us to remain alert, to be wise, Lord, in the times in which we live. Like uh, Dirk Willems, Lord, who's, who's gone on ahead of us, Lord, may we be found to be making godly choices and decisions uh, in our time, Lord, as we be a witness to the watching world around us. Father, thank you so much that we are never alone. You just call us to remain close to you, our shepherd, and you will fight our battles. So thankful, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.